Good morning, Flatiron Church. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for coming out on Super Bowl Sunday. I was really thinking our second service might be smaller than the first, uh, but it's not. You guys are showing up. That's awesome. Good work. Uh, also exciting news, we had two people meet Jesus first service. Two people. That's right. Let's go. And that's really what we, that's why we're here. That's what we're doing and why we do it, uh, so that people meet Jesus, so that his name is made great, so that his authority and his power is moving forward, so that his kingdom expands. And there's going to be a day and age where nobody knows our names, nobody knows Flatiron exists, but the faithfulness and the way we've stewarded the gifts and opportunities we have today will sing into the future as people meet Jesus. Amen? Some of you guys are wondering, why do you sound like you got a frog in your throat? Well, you know, I said a couple weeks ago that two of my kids had the flu. And I said last week that my oldest daughter got it finally. Cheers. Mm Mm-hmm. I got it this week. It it hit me on a Tuesday night. I was working out and remember coming home thinking, yeah, it was a good workout, but why do I feel so sore? Um, It wasn't that good. And the next morning, you know, body aches and everything else. So I sound worse than I feel. Uh, but if you choose to not see me afterwards because you just don't want to get, I understand. I understand. I won't take it personally. Okay. Some of you guys, um, you're, you're catching in for the first time, which is great. We're in John. Now, just so you know, this is our third section of John. We did two previous sections. It's going to take us 49 weeks to go through all of John. You're like, well, I'm out, out of this church. That's way too much. Here's, here's the thing. We don't do it all at one time. I take about six weeks at a time, we go through John, and we break it into smaller sections. But here's why we do this. The Bible uh, pushes us into the uncomfortable often. And if all we do is pick and choose or gloss over, we're going to miss a lot of what Jesus has to say to us within the minutia, the the fine details of his scripture. And so here at Flatiron, we have a conviction. We're going to preach through books of the Bible, and we're going to take as much time as needed to do so. But in order to not lose focus or track, or for me to not lose focus or track, because I would too, uh, we break it up into smaller sections, and we hit it a couple times a year. And so we are now in our third section. We're starting in chapter 6. And by means of preface, we're going to be talking about seasons of testing. Seasons of testing. Seasons where you're going through the crucible. Seasons where the temperature of life has turned up. And all of a sudden, now you're dealing with the ramifications, the fallout, if you will, of what it means to be faithful or to endure when that testing comes. For me, I've had many seasons of testing, and I know I'll have many still to go. One of the most profound seasons of testing that happened in my life was in 2019. It was the, the fall of 2019, so it was before the, the year of love in 2020, uh, that's a joke. Um, as we moved into that kind of final fall, it was my last year of seminary. And I was trying to get this degree done. The MDiv about did me in. And we had three kids. Lord knew he was going to provide one more because we weren't quite finished, um, although we thought we were. Um, another story. And that fall, I remember my body basically broke down. I was working a 50-hour job. I was doing school for 30 hours on top of that, plus raising kids, all these other things. Like, wow, you sound very proudful. No, no, I was very dumb. I was, I was doing way too much, way too many things. And my body started to break down, and I started to get what eventually would be diagnosed as nerve pain, nerve damage, pinched nerves, all that kind of stuff, all through the vertebrae and into the shoulder. But as it was happening, I didn't know that. All I knew was I was in pain, and I couldn't move my hand the way I had previously moved my hand. So 
when you're in seminary, you're typing a lot, you're getting a lot of papers done, you're sitting down a lot, you're reading a ton, and all of a sudden, I'm now in a season where those things are not easy. Those things are actually not just not easy, they're actually kind of hard, if not impossible for me to do at the same caliber and pace I've been doing them. It came to a head, I'm sitting in class, it's a New Testament class, and uh, everyone's getting up and they're turning in their papers, and it's the first time in my seminary career that I didn't have anything to turn in. Not only did I not have anything to turn in, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't even gotten it started because every time I tried to get to the keyboard to type, I just, it was so painful. And it was the first time in my life I looked around at everybody and I just felt like, why can't I do this? Why can't I finish this? Why can't I continue to, why can't I just bear through it? And I also knew it meant I was going to have to have a conversation with the professor. I was going to have to tell him one way or another, I, I can't do the assignment. And some of you guys are like, man, I do that every day. I tell people all the time I can't. But for me, it was like, I, I always get stuff done. Whatever I put my mind to, I'm going to do. And the Lord began to test that. He began to break that. He began to put me in a situation where my hardest efforts still did not result or yield what I wanted. Some of you guys are in seasons of testing right now. It may not be physical like mine was. It might be mental. You're anxious. You're kind of maybe even slipping into seasons of tremendous anxiety and depression. Some of you, it's your marriage. Some of you, it's your kids and what they're doing in their life or the hardships they're going through in their life. Some of you, it's your parents. You're watching them age or you're watching them make decisions that are foolish or maybe both together. Here's the thing that I want to leave you guys with. We're going to start with it. Your greatest enemy in those seasons, when you're in those seasons of testing, it isn't failure. It's faithlessness. Your greatest enemy is not failure. It's faithlessness. Here's why this is such good news. When you and I enter those seasons of life, those seasons of testing, we will often fail. And in fact, as we're going to see in our text, the failure might be the thing God's using to get our attention. The failure is actually the thing God's saying, yeah, you've been trying to do this thing on your own for a long time. Faithlessness, that's what you have to, that's what you have to not go into, dive into, allow it to take place, because that's how you fail those tests, truly how you fail those tests. So as we jump in, I want you to have that in mind, because you're about to see Jesus test his disciples. Some of you guys didn't realize Jesus tested his disciples. Uh, he does. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, welcome. He'll test you too. You're like, the Jesus I serve doesn't test. Well, then I wonder which Jesus you're serving. Because uh, Jesus of the Bible tests quite a bit. Now, he's not unkind. He's not, un, he's not cruel. He's not doing it maliciously. Uh, but he does test. So let's go ahead and take a look. Chapter 6, verse 1, picking it up here. Just as Jesus is getting over to the, the east side of the Tiberias. It says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is known as the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Pause there for just a second. Jesus is healing people. Uh, people are, are seeing miracles in ways they've never seen before in their life. And they're taking interest. They're following along. They're like, well, who's this Jesus guy? We're going to walk the 14 miles for comforts to the other side of 
the Sea of Galilee because we are interested in knowing more about who this Jesus is. Some of them were interested in, I, I still need to be healed. But there's an entourage. Here's the thing. This entourage, this crowd, keep them in your mind. They're going to come back up near the end of the sermon. They're going to come back up, okay? Now we're moving into the disciples. Verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. One of the major, major holidays of Israel. This was one of those things where people would travel far and wide to go back to Jerusalem in remembrance of being delivered out of Egypt. Okay, that's really what Passover was about. And lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You're going to notice Jesus looks up, he sees the people as they are, and then he asks Philip this question, how do we feed them? And he said this to what? Test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I said before, did you know that Jesus will test you? Yes, Jesus will test you. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very kind. Uh, Jesus is interested in growing you. Jesus is interested in developing you. Jesus is interested in letting you bear weight. He will not put weight on you unless he is, you have proven yourself to bear it. One of the ways that you know, people tell me all the time, Pastor Brian, I want to do something big with my life. I want to be something big for the kingdom of God. I want to make sure that I'm living for Jesus. And I always say that is a fantastic thing to want. Are you ready to be tested? Are you ready for suffering? Well, no, I'd, I'd really just like the glitz and glamour and to be known and, you know, have some nice sneakers. Um, well, just so you know, how the Lord usually chooses to work with people that he entrusts a lot on is he, he puts them through tests. Will you be faithful with small so that you can be faithful with much? Now, here's how Philip answers this. Verse 7. He answered, 200 denarii would worth of bread. Denarii or denarii, you can pronounce it either way. 200 of these worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get little. He's saying if we're talking meager rations, eight months of wages would barely get you there. How do we know that? Well, a denarii was about a day's wage. And so over the course of eight months, you could maybe gather enough of those to pay for the food that would be needed to cover this massive crowd. And so what happens is when Thomas is asked this, I'm not, not, not Thomas, when Philip is asked this question, Jesus looks at him and says, ask this question. The first response he has is he does some math. That's the first response he does. He goes in and then he responds to Jesus by the way, Jesus, whom he had seen turn water to wine, who he had seen heal the blind and heal the, the crippled, he had seen all these miracles. He goes to that same Jesus and said, eight months of wages, sorry, that's the minimum. Now, we could laugh at him. We could say, Philip, why are you being so foolish? But flatter and don't we do the same? You're like, well, I don't do the same. Well, this, this is hypothetically speaking for a friend. Don't we forget what Jesus has already accomplished? When those testing come, when those seasons of trial come, when I'm sitting there unable to do my work, what I tried to do initially was just go full force, own it, work at it. I'm going to figure it out if I have to use one hand or not. Here's the problem. Typing with one hand, I gave that up quick. But some of us do this, and we call this white knuckle. This is how some of us respond when those seasons of testing come. 
And what does a white knuckle response really mean? Well, we want to be enough for Jesus. That's the positive spin. The negative spin would be we want to do it on our own. Seasons of trial, seasons of testing, all of a sudden now we're in a, a crucible moment. The fire has been turned up. Some of us, not everyone here, but some of us at Flatiron, what we're going to do is we're going to hold that wheel and we're going to white knuckle. White knuckle simply means you're gripping the wheel of your life so tightly that your knuckles are turning white. And that tends to be some of us who are strong drivers, really strong as far as, hey, we're going to break through things. We're going to make it happen no matter what. That tends to be my personality. As a pastor, that tends to be where I, if I'm going to err on something, that's where I'm going to err. And there's a lot of cool things that can happen as you drive forward, but there's also a lot of negative things that can happen too. Sometimes the Lord is giving you a test you cannot overcome on your own. You can't. But you keep pushing and drilling, head down. Where are you today? I know, I know this doesn't hit all of you, but some of you, where are you today? You're holding your life with your hands, and you're getting tired if you're being honest. You're fatigued if you're being honest. You're trying your hardest, and it's not enough. Some of us, we don't white knuckle. We avoid. Don't raise your hand, but some of you guys are married to avoiders. Hey, we got a real problem here. Can we please talk about it? No, please, no. I mean, I'm just trying to read my Bible, so could you give me some time? Man, I've seen everything. I've seen the Bible used in avoidance before. Yes. Avoidance is when all of a sudden that problem is before you, the temperature's turned up, and you're like, no, nothing to see here. I'm good. This tends to happen when what you're believing is, I don't want to be used by Jesus for whatever he wants to do, but, uh, but that's kind of the positive spin. The negative spin would be, I, I don't want to deal with what it might actually cost. So if you get into the avoidance posture, what that tends to look like is temperature's up, things are firing now in your life, and instead of trying to figure it out, you're just simply walking away. And maybe, and this happens a lot in marriages, you haven't made the divorce final, but you divorced in your heart long ago. You're no longer fighting for that marriage. You're no longer fighting together with your spouse. You're, you're gone. You're emotionally cut off. This happens with kids too. We can see this as you engage the kids or disengage the kids. There's real problems with Johnny. He's starting to go sideways and, you know, oh, but you know, boys will be boys and he'll be fine. And, and come to find out he doesn't love Jesus and he never has. And you never stepped in. Now, you can't change his heart but you can 100% influence. The other ways I see this is a lot of times we'll have deep hidden sins. They keep us from walking faithfully with God. I deal with a lot of young men and women and issues of pornography will come up and you know, anytime you talk about that, you get squeamish and I'm always like, no, God wants to shine light there. He wants to bring freedom there too because you're never gonna walk in total freedom if you've got that dragon behind you. You're just not. And it's going to limit and totally reduce the, the, your ability to follow Jesus in those moments when all you're thinking of is, here's how I failed. Yeah, because that's what the enemy does. He takes your sin, he constantly throws it against you. You're never waiting for a sinless period, but what you are waiting for is faithfulness. And it begins with being honest, not avoiding. Here's the last bucket, just in case those two didn't hit you. 
I don't know how they didn't hit you, but, but this one certainly will hit you, anxiety. I was white knuckling, couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. All of a sudden, month two rolls into month four, and I break. And I go to an anxious spot, and that anxious spot basically is this the rest of my life? How many of you guys, you're in the testing, and you've been enduring for a little bit, you've been white knuckling, or you've been avoiding it, and all of a sudden it hits you, and all of a sudden that fear grips your heart, and you're like, this is the rest of my life. And then you know what happens to your heart? Oh, it goes low. Depression sets in. Gets hard to get up in the morning. Hard to get out of bed in the morning. There are seasons literally in 2019, that fall, where, where the most I could do was get the bare minimum done just to sit on the couch and anxiously stir in my mind. Linda will tell you. She was the one that had to remain faithful in that season when I, the bottom just dropped for me. Here's what anxiety is. Anxiety is not trusting that Jesus is better. That's the positive side. The other positive is not trusting that he'll tell a better story with your life. A lot of times there's things that are going to hit us. It could be medical, like me, where you're like, how in the world can I be okay with this? I've been given a terminal sentence. How in the world can I be okay with this? The person I love has to endure this. How in the world? And what we don't realize is that the Lord gives us strength for that day. We're, we're trying to have him follow us down the rabbit holes of our fear into weeks and months and years that don't even exist. And we're asking him to meet us there. And he's like, no, 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 no. I give you strength for today. Not for the worries and fears that haven't even begun or haven't even come. You don't know the future. Stop acting like you do. He's given you strength for today. Anxiety is one of those things where it, it will cripple the heart and mind and make you and turn you to a shell of a person. And, you're, and, and here's the lie we often believe is we believe the more anxious we are, the more we worry somehow that's going to eventually pay for itself and we'll be fine again. I've never met nor experienced increased anxiety bringing healing. But we live as though I can. And so if you find yourself here, you find yourself white knuckle, avoiding or, anxi- or anxious, and there's a season of testing, the fire's been turned up, pay attention. Pay attention to what the Lord is going to say here in his word. First thing is, let's give one more example of doing it foolishly. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So, you've got Philip's first response, which is, the math doesn't check out. You've got Andrew's response, which is, well, we got this kid that's got five small loaves and two small fish. In modern speak, we'd call that the Lunchable. And so he's coming in. He's bringing the Lunchable. We're like, well, how's that going to feed the crowd of 5,000? It's not. And that's the best we've done. That's what the disciples have come up with. That's no different than running to white-knuckling, avoidance, or anxiousness. All of it is a response of when the problem arises, we look in versus looking up. Philip, look to the math. Andrew, look to the kid. We often look in. And we try to fix the problem ourselves. 
Here's the big idea again, just in case you missed it. In seasons of testing, your greatest enemy isn't failure, it's faithlessness. If you're here today and you're like, yep, I'm the white knuckler. Yep, I'm the avoider. Yep, I am currently very anxious. Then what I want you to see is that you haven't missed the test. This test might be showing you you're not enough on your own. And he has something more for you. A lot of times we get to those seasons of tests and we just kind of think, well, I'm, I, God's not going to use me because clearly I, I'm, I'm deficient somewhere and I didn't get the memo of how to do this thing well. Nobody did. Sometimes the test is to show you, you need me. Sometimes the test is to show you, you've been doing this Christian walk on your own for so long, you forgot why. And sometimes it's actually the thing that's going to bring you to meet Jesus. Take a look at what he does. Verse 10. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now you got to imagine, Philip just said, eight months worth of materials. Andrew says, I got the, the kids' food here. You, you got to imagine how Jesus is feeling in this moment. He's looking at his disciples like, okay, just sit down. Just go. Make yourself useful. Have them sit down too. In fact, every, just all 20,000 of you just sit down. So he has them sit down, and he has them sit down, and the man sit down at about 5,000 in number, which means if you included women and children in that, you're probably looking at upwards of 20,000 people. And then verse 11 happens. Jesus takes the loaves, and when he had given thanks, which meant he, he prayed a prayer of blessing over him, that's what he did, that's what it means to give thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Yeah, I'm going to read that again. He took the loaves, and after he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus was not thwarted by the test that thwart you and me. He was not overwhelmed by the test that overwhelm us. He was not taken aback by the tests that take us aback. Because he's God. Because he's king. It's interesting to me is whenever we come across those seasons of testing, the number one goal that I want to encourage you, Flatiron, to do is look to Jesus. I know that sounds simple, and it is simple. But in practice, it's one of the most difficult things you and I will ever do. Because we're so used to looking at ourselves. Look to Jesus. You think, but that doesn't change my diagnosis. Doesn't change the diagnosis, it changes how you endure the diagnosis. It doesn't change how the trial is going with the spouse, but it does change how you endure that trial with that spouse. Doesn't change the behavior of the kid who's walking in their own way, but it does change how you endure the child who's walking in their own way and how you approach the child who's in, walking in their own way. He changes you. And he places a peace in you. How do I know? Because I saw him do it in me. Four months in, lowest low of my depression, I call up, have a conversation with my younger brother, and what does he do? He reminds me of Jesus. 
She says, get, get, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I need you to spend some time reading his word. I need you to spend some time washing your mind and heart with the word. And here's the Psalms that have helped me in those seasons of my darkness. Here's the Psalms that have helped me in those seasons of my absolute anxiety that's riddled me. And you know what I did? I started to read those. I started to write down. I started to be quiet before the Lord. And I would just spend as much time as I could letting the word of God wash over me. And he brought a peace. It wasn't a change in my diagnostic. It wasn't a change in the physicality. It wasn't I could finally get the paper done. It was Jesus. It was my eyes were on him, and I found him to be far sweeter than the things around me. And you won't understand this unless you get to the end of yourself and realize I was never meant to be enough. He is enough. And that's the hope we have. And if you think, no, I think this is just happy talk, I'm telling you, like genuinely, you will go through seasons where if you believe that it's just happy talk and you're still going to do it on your own, you will be miserable. You will. And no one can save you from that. You have to turn from that and turn back to the one who's already saved, which is Jesus. How do I know? Because there's two responses to what happens right now. There's two responses. One is the disciples and one is the crowd. I told you don't forget about the crowd. We're going to look at the disciples first. They were the ones closest to Jesus. Verse 12, after Jesus had done this miracle and they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I would say, in the truest sense of the word, the disciples failed the test, Right? Philip, instead of saying, you're the king of all, he went to math. Well, the science isn't adding up. Andrew <laughs> went to the small boy that just had five loaves and two fish and said, at least it's something. Those are our best efforts to try to fix the problem. Those are our best efforts to answer the test in our own strength. But here's what Jesus did with that test. He knew they were going to fail. And the failure highlighted their need. When those disciples gathered those 12 baskets, what do you think their heart felt? We serve a mighty king. When future seasons of testing came, what do you think they remembered? I remember filling the baskets of 12 when 5,000 men sat down and Jesus did what only Jesus can do. Don't allow your test and the failures in your test to be the end of the story. Push in by faith because he'll use those to remind you in other seasons that he has not changed. Come on, let's go. Praise God. This is what changes the world. This is what changes the world. Jesus Christ. And he does it through his Holy Spirit, working through his word, working in you and me. And so they did. But they weren't the only people there. There was a second group there. And we're going to read them now. Verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They got that part kind of right. Verse 15, though, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Now, I want you to understand verse 15 in its context. Anytime you get to a Passover, there's a lot of fervent zeal, nationalistic zeal for the nation of Israel because of its shared history of coming out of Egypt. And the people were looking for a Messiah figure. They were looking for this prophet that was to come, but they were looking for him to be a ruler that would you know, judge the Romans, that would vanquish the foe, that would fight the oppressors, that would reestablish an Israel. And so as they're looking at Jesus, do what only Jesus can do, they, they want to take Jesus, but they don't want to worship Jesus. They want Jesus to do their bidding. They want Jesus to be king. You're thinking, oh, but, but they say they want him to be king, right? That's like a, a posture of deference to him. Yeah, they want him to be king for their ends. Jesus is not king for your and I ends. He's a king unto himself. And we were created to not just worship him, but to extend his kingdom. Here's the problem I see, Flatiron Church, is that this group, they walked miles, 14 miles to get to the other side. They enjoyed his provisions, and they totally missed him. They saw Jesus, but they didn't see Jesus. They enjoyed what he gave them, but they didn't worship him as king. And there are people here today sitting in this room who know so much of Jesus, and they don't know him. They've never trusted him. He's not king unto them. He's not Lord over them. He's insurance of them. But that is suspect if there's no belief, if there's no, he actually is my king and Lord. And the thing that you're seeing here is it is very possible, indeed probable, for people to spend their whole time and whole life around Jesus and never actually meet him as king. They wanted him to go to Jerusalem wielding the spear and casting judgment, not realizing he was going to Jerusalem to take the spear and to receive our judgment. He was a king like no other king, coming to give his life so that we may live. So whether you find yourself today, this morning, as a believer enduring hardship and trial, or you find yourself here today saying, you know what, that might be me. I don't know if I've met Jesus. I want to give us an opportunity right now to respond. For those who are in the crucible, the fire, the life has turned up, I want to give us an opportunity to get uh, encouragement from the Lord that only he can bring, to cry out to the Lord. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to meet him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity. A prayer doesn't save you, but a prayer offers you the opportunity to express faith that saves you. And that's what we're going to do right now. Bow our heads with me. Let's pray. And we can get the pad going. Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for the words of John. I thank you so much that you have continued to use this well-known story of feeding 5,000 people, not just to impact the men and women of that day, but even down to present. Using it to stir our hearts, to see truth for what it is, and to be forced to respond that we might not live blindly going forward. For my brothers and sisters who are in those crucible moments, those seasons of trial, Lord, I pray against the spirit that wants to white-knuckle it and own it. I pray against the spirit of avoidance that wants to run far from it. And I pray against the spirit of anxiousness that wants us to be, if we are going to be Christians, he wants us to be miserable Christians. 
And instead, Lord, I pray for a favor that comes from you. I pray for a leading in to see the failures as not as a complete failure, but as an opportunity to once again in faith trust in the greatest hope we have, which is you. Lord, that you might mobilize this church as an army in darkness, uh, fighting darkness against an enemy who wields his darkness everywhere. Mobilize us to be a faithful people that moves forward your word so that those who are far from you would come to know you. Those who are near you would trust you more. Those who are trusting you more would be filled with favor and glory and joy. But for those outside the faith, they've spent their lives maybe sitting in churches just like this. They've spent their lives sitting in places just like this. They've never taken that step because they're still doing it on their own strength. They still think that this life is better served when they're the king. Well, right now, would you rebuke them sharply? Allow them to see that your hand, your word, that were pierced on that cross, it's the only blood that covers and it's the only hope we have. And indeed, would they recognize that you've invited them in right now to trust in that blood, to cover them, to renew them to restore them to the creator that made them because that death on that cross was not final and as they buried you in the tomb three days later, you indeed rose, conquering sin and death and giving life to those who believe. If that's you today, raise your hand that you're taking that step, that you're moving out in faith, that you're walking with Jesus, not in your own strength, but in his power. Praise God. Praise God. Hands down. Lord Jesus, use your bride, this church, and many others like her to grow your kingdom even as the darkness increases in our own land so that your name would be made great, so that your kingdom would grow, so that those who have yet to be born would come to know you as their king and savior. And I ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.